We shall meet, but we shall miss him. There will be one vacant chair. We shall linger to caress him while we breathe our evening prayer. When a year ago we gathered, joy was. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I read a hundred pages of the works of great American writers and give some of my thoughts or some historical context or whatever else um, comes to me. And I hope you read along with me. Today, we are continuing our look at Louisa May Alcott's wonderful novel, Little Women. Uh, This is the third the fourth episode on Little Women. So if you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and listen to the previous episodes. Or if you're familiar with the text, you think you can just jump right in at this point, that is fine too. We are going to start on chapter six of part two. Uh, Now, sometimes this book is chaptered together. They don't divide it up into part one and part two. Um, The Library of America version, which I'm using, does restart rechaptering in in part two. So, I guess if you're, it would be something like chapter, maybe like 28 or 29 if if you didn't have that division, but it's the sixth chapter of part two, um, Calls. Now, one thing I mentioned in the previous episode is at this point in the novel, the story kind of sets aside two of the four Marsh girls. Of course, you have Meg, the oldest, Joe, the writer, Beth, the musician, and Amy, the artist, just to briefly describe them by their uh, what they're most known for in the novel. Um, in the earlier part of the novel, we got a little bit more of Meg and Beth, and both of those characters are kind of set aside. They both have are, are in different ways more traditional women than the other two. Meg, because she marries, uh, works in the home, raises kids, and that kind of fulfills the I- ideal of separate spheres at least how most women uh, pursued it. However, Beth is more kind of the ideology of of separate spheres, the silent, weak, passive woman. And by this point in the novel, she's quite ill. She's not really doing that much. But instead, Alcott starts to focus more on the two more creative, outgoing, traveling girls. Both of them travel quite a lot. And that is Joe and and Amy, both who really go on an adventure uh, in this part of the novel. So it's fitting that this part of the novel begins with a look at the interactions between Joe and her younger sister, Amy. So the chapter is called Calls. Calls meaning they're going and visiting people. And that's essentially what happens in this chapter. It's really a nice chapter about how different these two girls are, actually. Amy is often annoyed that Joe doesn't really go out more and go on these calls, something that Amy likes to do. And we've already kind of seen by this part in the story how how much Amy is trying to juggle her expanding social life. She's very beautiful, very outgoing. Um, and she's trying to juggle that with the development of her talent and her skills as, as an artist. Um, now, both of them require a lot of work and effort on her part. But Amy, you know, thinks Joe should do that a little bit more, go out more, have more friends like she has, and encourage, and she encourages her to go out and see some people. So that's where this chapter comes from. This is basically Amy forcing Joe 
out of the house and out of her writing to hang out with neighbors. So they visit three houses, I think, in this chapter. Um, and at each place, Joe basically does poorly and Amy does great. And as you might expect, Joe is kind of unfamiliar. Now, one theme of this part of the book, it seems to me, is really almost practice makes perfect, right? Art, skill, talents of, of all types, whether it's being a mother or an artist or a writer or even just a social gadfly, it all requires labor and hard work and exercise and calisthenics, if you will. And Joe, because she doesn't really practice these skills, does poorly. Joe is, for instance, very curt and direct. She sometimes mocks people in ways she shouldn't. And these are things that are going to have consequences in later chapters. And Amy really knows how to be the popular, cheerful girl. And Joe, in fact, at times undermines her relationships with some of her friends. For instance, she was still redder and more uncomfortable a moment after when a small turn in the conversation introduced the subject of dress. One of the young ladies asked Joe where she got the pretty drab hat she wore to the picnic. And stupid Joe, instead of mentioning the place where she bought it two years ago, must needs answer with unnecessary frankness, Oh, Amy painted it. You can't buy those soft shades, so we paint any color we like. It's a great comfort to have an artistic sister. And why is this bad? Well, because it kind of exposes the poverty of the family, that they didn't really have the money. Um, and, of course, it puts Amy on the spot as the one who painted it. So it, it, it's a bit socially uncomfortable for, for Amy. Now, at one point in this chapter, Joe makes fun of a young woman named Miss Chester. And Alcott steps in this point and actually suggests that Amy is actually correct in how to, how to do this. And you're, you're a bit surprised because obviously Joe is the stand-in for Alcott, and increasingly so in the second half of the novel. But here she actually says, well, there are weaknesses I had that Joe have that other people had. So, for instance, this is what she writes. If Joe had only known what a great happiness was wavering in the balance from one of them, she would have turned dovetail in a minute. But unfortunately, we don't have windows in our breasts. We can't see what goes on in the minds of our friends. Better for us that we cannot as a general thing. But now and then it would be such a comfort, such a saving of time and temper. By her next speech, Joe deprived herself of several years of pleasure and received a timely lesson in the art of holding her tongue. So it's a lesson. Now, that's another interesting thing in this part of the novel is in the first half of the book, it's, it's Marme. It's the mother giving the lessons to the March girls. And that still happens from time to time, but much less often. And it's more they, these girls have to, or these young women now, have to learn um, learn the lessons, I guess, the hard way. Through life. Wow. I have some homemade plum wine made with rice liquor. And it's got a little sharp taste. Okay, anyways, next chapter. Uh, chapter 7, Consequences. So the, this chapter are the direct consequences of the previous chapter and kind of the mess that Joe made of these calls, these visits. Now, one of the houses they visited was that of Mrs. Chester. And she's very upset in the way the March girls treated her daughter. In fact, they kind of gossiped about her. And I think at one point, Joe kind of pretended to be like her and made fun of her in a way. Word got out that Joe made fun of Miss Chester. And so there's this Maychester is her name, you know, the, the younger daughter. And word gets out that also that Maychester is jealous of the March girls for other reasons as well. So that is really the problem. And to repair this relationship, they decide they're at like a fair and Maychester is selling like uh, 
vases and I think Amy's selling like flowers. So they buy all of Amy's flowers and bring them to Maychester and say like, oh, we need a vase and they buy up all her vases. And that's sort of the effort to make amends here. So it's, it's just about kind of how you repair those, these relationships that got damaged through these nice social graces and things. And they enlist Lori, then, then who's back from college and in relaxing um, with his childhood friends. And so he's part of the scheme to, to kind of make Maychester feel better. Now, at the end of the chapter, Amy gets word that she'll be going with Aunt Carol, which we've met Aunt Marsh a lot, but this is Aunt Carol, I guess it's Aunt from the other side of the family, and that she's going to go with her on a tour of Europe. Now, Joe wants to go, but but in a previous time, previous chapter, she would have been very angry that Amy was leaving at all because she always wants her family to stay close to home and she doesn't want them venturing out. But now at this point, she starts to want to explore the world too. So she's jealous, not just not angry that she's leaving as much as she's jealous that she can't explore the world. Now, Carol has not been a major character before, um, but you know it's just another one of the ants. But she's very much like Amy in the, in the sense that she's a social gadfly and her and Amy are quite a good match. And so them going on this trip together makes a lot of sense. Um, chapter eight, our foreign correspondence. So we just get word that Amy's going to Europe and the next chapter is already her sending letters home. So the time's really flying in this part of the novel. Um, so there's really not always a very careful reckoning of, of the time. It's just, I'm leaving to Europe and the next chapter starts with letters from home. So the most important thing in this chapter though is that Amy is learning to see. This is, this is an important skill for an artist. And she describes the sights and sounds of Europe quite beautifully and with uh, uh, an important artist's eye. This is a skill an artist needs. I never shall get to London if I don't hurry. The trip was like riding through a long picture gallery full of lovely landscapes. The farmhouses were my delight with thatched roofs, ivy up to the eaves, lattice windows, and stout women with rosy children at the door. The very cattle looked more tranquil than ours, and they stood knee-deep in clovers like the hen had a contoured cluck as if they had never gotten nervous like Yankee biddies. Such perfect color I never saw, the grass so green, sky so blue, grain so yellow, wood so dark. And it was rapture, I was in rapture all the way. So was Flo, and we kept bouncing from one side to the other, trying to see everything while we were whisking along at a rate of 60 miles an hour. So she's, you, get, you really get this image in your head, the way she describes it, which suggests to us that Amy is becoming quite skilled at observing uh, the thing she she needs to observe and this is going to help her become a good artist now amy is being courted while in europe uh two of i think they're Lori's friends fred and frank vaughn they're in europe too and they're flirting with amy and they're trying to you know court her and amy's starting to think about marriage as a possible future and she actually talks in this chapter that like maybe i'd marry one of these guys if he asked so she's very much thinking about uh, her future as a married artist now in these past three chapters amy's been really cultivating her social skills as much as she does her artistic ones and she seems to be on a path of someone who really loves material things now americans have always had this not, i'm not saying all americans have this but americans have always had this anti-consumerist kind of side to them i mean even like the jeffersonian yeoman farmer ideal of self-sufficiency um, with industrialism, you had some people who said, you know, kind of resisted this, the more conservative reaction to urban society and urban culture. Populist resentment towards banks and, and 
money and the, the, the way money was being done. The materialism of money, something that the populists really hated. They wanted, of course, paper money or, or depreciated, uh, inf def inflated currency. Yeah, inflated currency. And then even you know later on, you have, um, like in the '60s, there was kind of an anti-consumer side to it. During the wars, there was not boycott. Uh, what's the word? rationing and sacrificing consumption was a way of being a good American. So there's always been this strand. And even today with ecology and ad busters, I guess that's a Canadian magazine, but you know my my point. Anti-consumerism has kind of run through American culture, despite being a very consumer-oriented economy, particularly in the 20th century. Um, and what I noticed here is that it's not really criticized it's not that Amy's bad because she's being a consumer. It's not being judged. And even though other ones of the girls don't really consume, and it's not them, it, it is what Amy does. And I, I kind of appreciate that there's not this judgment by an Elcott's part of, of the consumer side of things. Because I'm kind of on the side of, of consumption a little bit. Um, just because as, as, as my background is like in labor history. So when a worker... Is demanding higher wages they're really demanding more rights to consume right and a bigger share of what they produce at the end of the month so in a sense i, I you know where does not consuming get us it, you know it basically is asking people who already are being exploited and you know, not enjoying life as fully as they should based on what they produce to consume less uh, i know of course smart consumption is of course a valuable thing and and you know avoiding plant obsolescence and maybe spending more to buy nice stuff instead of junk at Walmart that that might have a place. I'm, I'm not saying that, that that it doesn't, but um, when it comes down to it, you know, I think more consumption is better than kind of saving the, the ethic of savings is superior to that. No, the ethic of consumption is superior to the ethic of savings. It might be my view. And I think here you don't get that typical American anti-consumer judge, judgmentalism. Um, so chapter nine, this is again part two, chapter nine, um, tender troubles. So Beth is down. This is We haven't seen Beth in a while and we get a little window into her. She's quite down because she's ill and she's coming to realize that she won't live long. For It's still a secret. She's hiding it. And this is part of the way we interpret Beth, it seems to me. That Beth is silent, even in her realization that she's going to die. Now, but Joe, and because of this, other people are aloof to it. Like Joe is quite aloof to it. You know, she's aware that Beth's not getting better, but, you know, she's got her own things in her mind. She thinks, in fact, at this point, that it's actually love trouble. And she assumes that Beth is in love with Lori, and that's why she's down all the time. So she has some observations to back this up, but they lead to the wrong conclusions. Now, Amy's observations in the previous chapter were precise, like an artist's, but Joe's are imaginative, like, like an author's. So um, know, that, I think, was a uh, pretty original interpretation, if I don't say so myself. But um, Amy is observing like an artist. Joe is observing like a writer. And I'll just read it to you so you get a sense. Um, Huh, said Joe, still intent upon her sister's face, for the bright color faded as quickly as it came. The smile vanished, and presently a tear lay shining on the window ledge. Beth whisked it off and glanced apprehensively at Joe, but she was scratching away at a tremendous rate, apparently engrossed in Olympia's oath. The instant Beth turned, Joe began her watch again, and Beth's hand 
saw Beth Hand go quietly from her eyes more than once, and in her half-averted face read a tender sorrow that made her own eyes fill. Fearing to betray herself, she slipped away, murmuring something about needing more paper. Mercy on me! Beth loves Laurie, she said, sitting down to her own room, pale with the shock of discovering what she believed she had just made. I never dreamed of such a thing. What will Mother say? I wonder if he... Then Joe stopped and turned scarlet with a sudden thought. If he shouldn't love back again, how dreadful it would be. He must. I'll make him. End quote. And it goes on like this. So she's worried that Joe, well, Lori likes, loves love with her. And that's true, actually. And therefore won't reciprocate best love. But it's all exact. It's all made up. It's all in her imagination. So it's really a great skill to have as an artist to, to, to take like the finger, the gestures of her hand against her eyes as interpreting them as love. So, in fact, it is Lori who's in love with Joe, and Joe knows it. So she decides, among other reasons, that it's time for her to go away and travel. So Joe takes a job in New York City working as a governess, uh, which was a common job for educated young women to take, where they'd they're basically be the full-time tutor for rich kids in home tutors. As she tells Lori of her plans, Lori more or less confesses his feelings for Joe. So chapter 10, Joe's journals. So like before, Amy left and then instantly we get letters in the next chapter. So Joe says, I'm leaving to New York. And the next we get is diaries. So again, time is really flying here. We also get a few letters in this chapter too. It's mostly her diary entries. A more like Amy again is being social. So she's focused on the letters she's sending back home. Uh, Joe is more reflective and in a more about writing and her internal monologue. So we get diaries, but we do get a few letters too to kind of round things out, but it's mostly the diary. Joe is living in a boarding house and educating the kids of a woman named Mrs. Kirk. Joe, who will become a teacher as much as a writer, is engaged in important job training at this point. Now, Joe is writing a diary, so she's a bit more open in her feelings than Amy was in her letters. And it's through these diaries that we learn about Mr. Bear, a German professor. Mr. Bear will have a very important role in the rest of the novel. And here's how he's described. Professor Bear was there, and while he arranged his books, I took a good look at him. A regular German, rather stout, with brown hair tumbled all over his head, a bushy beard, droll nose, and the kindest eyes I've ever seen, and a splendid big voice that does one's ears good, after a sharp or slingshot American gavel. His clothes were rusty, rusty, his hands were large, and he hadn't had a handsome feature in his face except his beautiful teeth. Yet I liked him, for he had a fine head, his linen was spady nice, and he looked like a gentleman, though two buttons were off in his coat and there was a pinch on one shoe. He looked sober in spite of humming, till he went to the window to turn the hasseneth bulbs towards the sun, stroked the cat, who received him like an old friend. And then he smiled, and when a tap came on the door, he called out in a loud, brisk tone, Herin! Um, so, Bear is just a nice man. Um, he's a philosopher. He's a professor, he's educated, he's a teacher, but what makes him a good person is just his, his overall goodness. Everyone likes him, and children and adults both like him. He's helpful, he's generous, he's poor, he doesn't really have a good job, he, you know. He's, I guess he's equivalent like an adjunct professor or something, maybe even more, maybe like a tutor or something. So he really is not the ideal mate for, for Joe, um, but at least not from the outside perspective. And apparently readers at the time didn't like this at all. They, they wanted her, Joe, to end up with Lori. And when she ended up with Bear, 
you know, first bears a lot older than Joe, I think 15 years older and again, poor, you know, a foreigner, not traditionally handsome. So I, I think he's a really important character in the sense that he shows what Alcott is says that women should seek out in a mate, not just the most beautiful or the most handsome or the one who gives the most, even the most stable life. That's something that Mrs. Marsh always talks about. Like, I want you girls to have stability and, and hard work can get us that stability. That's not even really the point with this relationship between Bear and Joe, which is much more about friendship. And the first, if I were to trace back this idea, the earliest I know of it coming out is Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, The Vindication of the Rights of Women, where she argues that women should find husbands who are friends first. Don't go for romance because that's fleeting. And don't just go for money because that's not the foundation of a happy life. You should basically marry a friend. And that's actually what chapter 11 is called, A Friend. And it's about Professor Bear becoming a friend of Joe. So Joe's getting tied into the literary environment of New York and writing articles for a rather vulgar sentimental magazine called The Weekly Volcano. And the, even the name suggests it just sort of expels junk. Um, and it, she writes sensationalist piece, not really so much sentimental pieces. I, I think I misspoke, but really sensationalist pieces, like little adventure tales and exaggerated little stories. She's not proud of this work, but it does make her quite a lot of money. And there's a, a line here about how kind of thick her purse is getting and it keeps her very comfortable. So she's starting to make it as a writer, but she's doing it by writing what the what the audience wants. She sees Mr. Bear quite often. Um, and at one point she sees him talk about philosophy and notices that he was never very talkative before. He kind of held back on his ideas in these public forums. But when he did talk, he expresses his views very articulately and brilliantly. And she's very much impressed by what she sees in this this man at that point. This inspires Joe to break free of writing these sensationalist novels and stories and begin to express herself more authentically. And I think at this point is where it's implied she starts writing the first volume of, of Little Women. She studies other writers. She tries different things. Now, partially this is due to an embarrassment she feels in front of Mr. Bear. Because uh, when he learns that she writes this silly stuff, she he kind of makes a face or something. And, and she's kind of embarrassed. And it's not really clear if Bear really thought less of Joe because of what she wrote. But that's how Joe interpreted uh, what she saw. Eventually, Joe tells Bear that she will go back to New England and see Lori and her family. Because Lori had just graduated. Bear's kind of frustrated with this because he's starting to have feelings for Joe and you know who knows when she'll come back so Joe gives up on her New York life and in a sense leaves this relationship with Bear in the air Joe is frustrated at this point because she has not yet learned her voice and she seems to be failing at writing when she tries to be authentic and tries to write truer stories she's not as successful Bear is inadvertently pushing her into deeper writing now there's not a point like in the movie version, the 95, 94 version movie with uh, Winona Ryder, Bear, who doesn't have a beard, by the way. I don't, I wonder why they made that choice. But um, Bear actually says, like, you shouldn't write this way. I don't remember in the novel him ever saying it that abruptly. It's more how Joe kind of reads his face and, and tries to imagine what he would have wanted out of a writer. But this requires a course correction for Joe that's quite painful and not financially advantageous, so her career gets put on hold. 
Then we get to chapter 12, heartache. So Joe is back at home uh, to witness Lori's graduation. And the bulk of this chapter is Lori's effort to convince Joe to marry him. He says, I'm graduated now. I can start my career. Let's get married. Joe confesses that they cannot marry. They're too alike. And she does not have those feelings for him. Lori attacks her for loving this older professor. But Joe defends Bear. He defends his value, but while also saying that she doesn't really love Bear that way either. And that's an important point because she's eventually going to marry him for completely other reasons outside of like romantic, passionate love, which is which is what Laurie feels. So there's an argument here about kind of the weakness, the futility of pursuing kind of the romantic love. Right. And none of the relationships really have that foundation, I, I think. None of the ones that are successful here. Megan, Brooke. You know, we, we get a lot of about the relationship kind of through rumors and innuendo and other people talking. But again, it's not like it's not presented as this passionate love affair. Now, Lori then goes to mope at his grandfather's and Mr. Lawrence gets the idea that maybe they should go to Europe together and like get him get him out of New England for a while. And so Lawrence and Lori go together to Europe. So it's another departure, another travel. Um, so next chapter, uh, Beth's secret. So Beth's secret, obviously, is that she's dying. Beth and Joe go on a long walk to the beach. Joe is the first person Beth tells about her illness directly, basically saying, I'm not going to live very long. In fact, everyone knew something was wrong with her. Beth is getting thinner and paler as the months pass. But it's been quite a while since we checked in on Beth. And it's only here to see her get ready to die. But there is an important place for her in the story still. Beth is this criticism of the passive, silent, and weak woman idealized in a lot of literature and the popular sexist ideology of the time. So there's a point here where Beth's, this is what she writes, Alcott writes, Beth lay a minute thinking, and then she says in her quiet way, I don't know how to express myself. I shouldn't try to anyone but you, because I can't speak out except to my old Joe. I only mean to say that I have a feeling that it was never intended I should live long. And I'm not like the rest of you. I never made any plans about what to do when I grew up. I never thought of being married as you did. I couldn't seem to imagine myself as anything but stupid little Beth trotting around at home of no use anywhere but there. I never wanted to go away. And the hardest part is leaving you all. I'm not afraid, but it seems I should be homesick for you, even in heaven. So actually, that, that that's quoted word for word in the in the movie that's that's at her deathbed this is this is at at the beach anyways but i think what she's saying here like i can't speak and this is the ideology um made transformed into a character beth for instance is the only character who doesn't learn to talk to men or elders except her mother and father and we actually see quite little of that she's like hugs her father and she's close to them but we don't actually see her speaking to them very much it's in this passage that she even confesses that she can only talk to Joe. Her major chapter in this part of the novel is this one called Beth's Secret. Again, showing us that silence is what dominates her life and her experiences. Chapter 14, New Impressions. This chapter is about Lori and Amy meeting up in Europe. Um, so basically, you know, of course, Lori went off to Europe to get away from Joe and to put his life back in order. Amy is able to attract Lori basically on the rebound. He starts to notice Amy, how beautiful she's grown, you know, she's become, you know, this time away has allowed Lori to 
not see her as a little girl, the youngest March girl anymore. So that time away allowed her to see her kind of with fresh eyes. There's a lot of flirting here as Amy takes steps to make herself attractive to Lori. And it seems that she is falling for him long before Lori even notices that Amy could be a potential wife. Um, but after a very bleak and sad chapter, we get a, a happier chapter, which about a new relationship being formed um, between Amy and Lori. Now, we've been talking about the themes of the novel as we went along. Usually I do that at the end of the novel, but for this one, I've been kind of introducing them as we went along. And in here, we have a big theme of, of coming and going, right? Part of adulthood is making your way in the world. And that sometimes means leaving your home and exploring and going out on essentially adventures. And many of our characters do that. Even Beth, you could argue, is going on an adventure really to, to death. And she's, she's going to be the first of the characters to face that. I think no other characters in the whole trilogy really die on screen. None of the major ones anyways. Some, some die off screen sort of between novels and things, but... Um, so they all have, all these characters have their journey to go on. The only one we didn't really meet up with is Meg. And, and in many ways, her story's done. Um, she's still kind of in the background, but after having given birth to her two children, you know, kind of her story is, is wrapped up. Um, but mostly it's about the travel and, the, and what that, and how that helps these people meet new people, meet old friends and look at them in new ways, learn their skills and their crafts, uh, Joe learns to be a writer. Amy learns to be an artist. Lori kind of learns to be more independent of his home in, in various ways, too. So coming and going become very important themes. But there's always this return home. And I think this is something Alcott does a lot. You see it in Little Ben and especially in Joe's Boys, the third novel of the trilogy, where there's always this coming back and, and the importance of a home. Despite going off in the world, you come back to this home. And then another theme at this part of the novel that kind of has entered in is heartache and frustration. Joe's writing is one example of this frustration. She had a successful path, but it was frustrating because it wasn't fulfilling. And then when she tries to write more in her heart and what she thinks is proper writing and more respectable, she's frustrated by not finding an audience and not being really, it's not working for her in the first place. And then Lori's courtship is also an example of a frustration, right? He always intended to ask Joe to marry. And then after he graduated, does all this work, he's rejected. So that, that kind of adds to it. And then there are other themes that are revisited that were talked about before, right? The relationship between men and women, death and loss, um, and growing up. All these things are, are still in part of the story, so they're not ignored. So that ends, ends our, the fourth episode I have on Little Women. I'll have one more where I'll wrap up uh, the story. Um, but we won't be done with Elcott. I'm going to do all three novels of the Little Women trilogy. So, um, but for now, we're, we're coming to the end of, of this novel, Little Women. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, you can just leave them uh, right on Podbean or Better yet, write me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll get back to you and try to address your comments uh, in the next episode. Uh, if you have feelings about Little Women, if you have read it, if you've met these characters, if, if you're revisiting this novel recently, I really want to know what you think about this. Um, have, did you read this as a young person and then when you grew up, read, you know, like I did, you know, kind of come at it with fresh eyes? You know, what was your experience doing that? Uh, did you see the movie? How do you think the movie compares to the original novel? Any of these questions could be things we could talk about and think about. 
Um, but for now, I will let you go. I'll see you in 100 pages when I bring you the conclusion to Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. But a golden cord is severed And our hopes in ruin lie We shall meet, but we shall miss him There will be one vacant chair We shall live 